0: Welcome to the Horror Vanguard, your one-stop shop for everything from Adorno to Zardoz. Prepare to get spooky. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very third episode of Horror Vanguard, your number one stop for leftist politics and horror movies. How's it going, John?
1: Good, good. Very good to be with you. Back. Uh, talking about the spookiest most left-wing culture
0: that we can get our hands on and we are we are starting the year off right we are starting the year off with one of the greatest horror movies ever made set on the greatest day of the year john carpenter's halloween
1: oh, i'm so excited i'm so exci- comrade john carpenter comrade john carpenter <laughs> yes uh an absolute stone cold classic uh of a film so sort of genre-defining and really kind of crystallized the form after, because this is what, four, four years after Black Christmas, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, this, this was even originally intended to be a sequel to Black Christmas.
1: And this is the one that sort of defines so many of the uh, stylistic choices and the tropes and the um, aesthetic of the sort of classic first wave of uh, slashes
0: yeah yeah i mean like you know texas chainsaw massacre and black christmas are are the proto films of the genre but it really doesn't start to solidify until john carpenter's halloween comes out like this is this is the uh, uh scaffolding upon which all other slasher uh killers grow
1: uh, absolutely absolutely and uh one that it wasn't appreciated when it first came out but it is now uh, correctly i would say regarded as a cult classic and just a brilliant example of carpenter's smart very stylish filmmaking
0: yeah yeah this film is is just on a really raw level it is just beautifully assembled you know carpenter was working with a three hundred twenty five thousand dollar budget which is a wild is sum nothing. of money, but not for a film. That is, that is nothing. Yeah, um, and, and it on the, on the back of that, it grossed I think forty eight million domestically. It turns
1: out that uh, horror has always been uh, very successful to a capitalist creative economy. Uh, horror, the um, horror
0: genre is nothing if not economically efficient for Hollywood.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Low cost, high profit, guaranteed audience. So if you view cultural. Uh, production as production, as as uh, economic exchange, and you know what this film sort of uh, triggers is like a is like a whole host of hugely profitable franchises. Um, if you haven't seen it, and by now you really should have. <laughs> uh, should we should we should we give a should we give a quick kind of plot recap for those uh, people who maybe have not. Uh, treated themselves to this great movie
0: experience A- absolutely and as 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 usual uh no spoiler warnings you know this movie this movie is older older than time itself the, this movie <laughs> this movie was found in an, in an ancient tomb so if you haven't seen carpenters halloween uh why are you listening to this podcast there's some elitist get- I, I don't for get you. it i do <laughs> so uh ash take it away what is this film about uh, this film, this film is about Michael Myers, the the Godfather of slashers everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, the film is set in uh, Haddonfield, Illinois, the prototypical suburban utopia. Michael mm-hmm. Myers escapes his confinement at a uh, asylum and proceeds to stalk and slasher kill tons of sex and substance use loving teenagers.
1: There we go. That, that is pretty much it.
0: Um, it is
1: it's actually surprisingly not graphic. There are a couple of moments which are genuinely shocking because Carpenter's like really restrained in how he uh, depicts violence. Um, so what did you think? Come on, let's, let's sort of jump right into the, into the fray. What do you, what's your kind of uh, first thoughts about, about Halloween?
0: Uh, this this is one of the greatest movies ever made you know and i'm not correct i'm not (laughs) 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 correct like i'll say i'll say that about a lot as this podcast goes on i will say this is one of the greatest movies ever made about a lot of really trash horror films (laughs) because i am i am a willing servant of the genre and horror films are the greatest genre of film uh inarguable (laughs) Inarguable. that is a science fact right there I believe believe it was Einstein himself who posited that (laughs)
1: true True facts
0: stated (laughs) Uh, that is not fake news kids horror films are the best Uh, you can look that up on Snopes Uh, absolutely it is is,
1: uh, really really well put together Um, it is the, the directing on it is superb the soundtrack is iconic the uh use of tension the way that, that the way that he comes to move the camera the lighting in it it's just genuinely fantastic and even now 40 years down the line it is a genuinely scary experience to watch right
0: uh, you know this this movie like horror movies tend to age kind of clumsily as as our societal values shift and you know the kind of the demands of on-screen aesthetics become more aggressive but this film uh, has aged so gracefully, and not to get not to get too great man auteur theory on this, but I think a lot of that comes down to Carpenter's decision making process, yeah, and his abilities yeah, yeah. as both a director and a composer. Like the decision the... to compose the theme for Halloween in uh, five fourths meter is just mm-hmm. like that is yep. that's visionary genius, and I am not fronting when I say that.
1: And there are so many, there are so many moments of really like almost unbearable tension mm-hmm. when nothing is really happening. And, <laughs> and so much of
0: that comes down to the direction too. Like when he was directing the various actors who played Michael Myers, they, they would be a- asking, uh, oh, what's my motivation in the scene? And he would, he would just kind of flatly say, oh, your, mo- your motivation is to walk from your first mark to your last mark,
1: mm, you know, yeah, in, or- yeah.
0: in order to really establish Michael Myers as this emotional, almost inhuman being.
1: So, the the film opens with maybe, maybe one of my favorite sequences of uh, filmmaking ever. Um, we uh, sort of fade in on a jack-o'-lantern and, a, and this kind of picture-perfect American house. And then in this sort of seamless five-minute take, you are taken into the house you're shown the uh, the horny teenagers uh making uh, the most of the fact that the parents are away uh <laughs> you see you see that you see them you see them go upstairs and this is all shot from a pov uh perspective and the camera then you know you go through the door you see them go upstairs you see uh the boyfriend come back downstairs you see a really brutal attack as you, you cuz you see a hand taking the knife out of a out of a drawer you see the attack upon someone uh and then you get the the amazing reveal right at the end of that sequence when after coming back down the stairs the camera pulls away from the perspective shot and it's this like 6 year old child that's just committed a really uh brutal violent uh murder uh, as the parents desperately try and work out what's happened and that's how the film opens and it's uh, it's shot on steadycam so it's got this kind of beautiful stability and fluidity to the movement through the house um and it's just amazing if you want to learn how to move a camera look at the way john carpenter composes shots and uh, and, and shoots this entire film; it's genuinely
0: incredible. Yeah, that that opening scene is so fluid, and when you finally get the reveal that it's that it's a child that's done all of this, you know that that is oh. that is such a one hundred and eighty from from what you are expecting. You know, when you are watching that sequence for the first time, it's just chilling. Um, yeah, it's a,
1: and it's such a it's a, such a good showcase of suburbia, right? Of the suburban making suburbia scary is actually quite a difficult thing to do I think right
0: yeah especially especially in the American cultural imagination you know suburbia is has has traditionally been depicted as a utopia you know suburbia mm. is it's the white picket fence it's the family with 2.5 children it's it's the single income dad who works and comes home and everything's clean and ready for him. It's, it's, very, um, it's very Andy Griffith, you know. It's very hard to poison suburbia in the American psyche, but John Carpenter does it.
1: I mean, I think Carpenter, Carpenter comes out of like a product of like probably about 20 to 30 years of slowly drip-feeding paranoia into suburbia. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about the, uh, the aftermath of World War II, the kind of global uh, and especially American economic boom, you have the, the birth of a kind of emergent, affluent, confident middle class. Um, but also you had uh, films like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh-huh. where in suburbia you had like, suburbia is not secure, right? It's not like in older kind of uh, uh, forms of communal living, you can pull up the drawbridge, you can, you can uh, get everybody inside the walls, but suburbia is like outside of the city. So in a way, you're actually quite vulnerable there.
0: And I, th- I think one of the things that this speaks to is that in, in in older communities and in other communities, there is in fact a community, but the community in suburbia is artificial, right? Suburbia mm, yeah, yeah. is a construct of neoliberalism and capitalism, right? These communities were planned. These are effectively planned communities and planned economies designed to only function in a capitalist society, and in our yeah. current market condition, there's really no other way to have a, a suburbia, you know, a place where there, there's no production of anything, you know. All it's just, a, it's just these little consumer bubbles that exist out in the middle of nowhere.
1: And that, and that sort of does slightly uh, strange things to people as well, right?
0: Yeah, there's, yeah, absolutely. Um, not, not to mention that, uh, you know, that that popular cultural imagination in in the American like literary and cinematic tradition of, of kind of this wondrous uh, bucolic purity that is suburbia has always been built upon an incredible amount of violence. The, the, the genocide of the Native Americans, the violence mm-hmm. conducted against uh, you know African Americans, the violence of slavery, the violence committed against women and women's time and lives in order to keep these spaces as they are. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Absolutely. I think um, this is the thing that makes suburbia so potentially contingent, right? Because not only is it something that you have to, that is uh, predicated and instantiated by violence. It's something that has to be fought for. You know, if you lose your job, if you if the if the bottom falls out of the out of the housing market, as it did in uh, late two thousand six, two thousand seven. Suburbia gets decimated, uh-huh. right? It's this fragile place that you're supposed to be delighted to have attained, but it's shot through with this uh, strain of paranoia and violence that you can't easily erase. You know, even even now you still have the idea of, like, you have to watch the neighbors. Uh-huh. You know, you, you have to constantly be on the lookout. You have to keep up with the latest... Um, you know, oh, they got a new car, which means we have to get a new car too. Otherwise, we're not going to be, we're going to be ill thought of.
0: Yeah, yeah, The that, that that community is, it's not a real community. You know, you, you're you not actually there for your neighbors. You're not trying to build something.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it reflects an interesting kind of deep tension within, I don't want to generalize, but probably within the American psyche as a whole, right? Because you have this conflict between individualism, and the pressures of a kind of collective identity, because if you are individually successful you know cap uh, successful in a kind of capitalist sense, you can afford to buy your way into suburbia. but once you're in there, you suddenly have to keep up the standards and appearances of what it means to be a suburbanite and that that's a kind of very powerful collective identity you know that's that's the the identity of being part of the the bourgeois part of the middle classes.
0: Yeah, that is the, I think that's definitely one of the fundamental characteristics Characteristics underpinning American horror is the tension between uh, the, the rugged American individual where we're ostensibly all of us should be capable to, on our own, by our lifting ourselves up from our bootstraps, go out into mm. the wild and carve out a fortune from nothing. But at yep. the same time, we are part of a larger society and we're supposed to have this uh, apocryphal national unity. And oh the, yeah, the, those completely. two things are fundamentally intention. That's something that a lot of horror film plays with.
1: And there's this, there's this long tradition, especially in American horror, of realizing that you don't know these people, mm-hmm. right? You don't. All of these identical houses that you've fought and and kind of sacrificed to be to be in, you don't know what kind of horror lurks behind those doors, right? You don't know who you're living next door to could be anybody <laughs> could be I mean I mean this is something Polanski thinks about in Rosemary's Baby oh yeah you know your neighbors could just be uh, overly friendly slightly too curious nosy old busybodies or they could be literally a Satan worshipping cult and mm-hmm. it turns out they're the Satan worshipping cult and I, think
0: that, I think this if is this, this, this is just a, a trend of like modern alienation from each other and from our lives you know we can see this in like it doesn't really matter if it's American horror or European horror, like the, the fundamental fear of everyone around us because we no longer have a community to call ourselves a part of.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, and it makes suburbia a really interesting place from the kind of historical materialist point of view as well, right? Because suburbia is not like, not only economically contingent, but it's it's new, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's something that, I think this again this is something that's true in America generally I've I've talked about this before that you know in America you don't have necessarily the same kind of depth of historical uh uh sort of context as there is in Europe. And I think I think because... it's I think it's
0: worth teasing out though that America would have and does have a historical context that is as long as Europe's we've just committed ethnocide to get rid of it entirely it's it's just been sort of
1: violently bloodily
0: suppressed it's it's the history of you know native american peoples it's the history of central american peoples that have just been eradicated by european uh colonial forces
1: which is strange right because if there's anything that that is a catalyst for the gothic for horror it is the desperation to suppress the reality of the past as a kind of force in the present. You know, I think that's a really interesting point that America, sort of as a as a as a as a project, is founded upon this like uh, genocide, and that has sort of been just. Well, we're not going to talk about that now. <laughs>
0: And this, this, this brings us back nicely to the figure of Michael Myers, because what happens to that little six-year-old boy that's locked away in an attempt to banish the past? He, yeah. he comes back as, as an inhuman force. He cannot be locked away. You can't banish the past. It's always going to be there.
1: Yeah, it will always find a way to make its spectacular, violent return. You know, the, the, the past always fights its way back into the present.
0: My, my favorite because... shot in the film that conveys this idea is when we're in the old abandoned Myers home and we see mm, that, yeah. that Michael Myers has brought his sister Judith's tombstone into the house. And laid it out on the yes, bed. Yes, and we see that the, the past is wholly inescapable. It's It's oh, permanently yeah. haunting and you can't, like these suburban utopias are overlaid on onto this 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 history of death and violence, and that overlay will always be there. It will always be under the surface.
1: I mean, in many ways, in many ways, like the classic tropes of the gothic castle and the, and the old haunted house are sort of qu- quietly reassuring, right? You go, oh, I I sort of know the rules, <laughs> you know, don't go near the castle. Yep. But in sub in suburbia, there is this streak of of violent horror that can't be that it's not reassuring that's not familiar enough to be reassuring again that that lack of, of historicity thanks to to that violent sublimation of colonial activity and so it's really striking that Carpenter sort of brings it like into the bedroom like <laughs> this is this is where death resides this is this is the violence behind every bland suburban front
0: door <laughs> What, what? Oh my God. I just love this movie so much. <laughs> the car- Carpenter Carpenter's Halloween is just, this is a phenomenal piece of art. You know, it's, it's just uh, not, not only is it on a technical level, adeptly crafted and not only uh, Carpenter was able to orchestrate all of these pieces under, under a very restrictive uh, financial situation, but, but, but on top of that technical level, the this, this subject material here has just been so strongly laid out. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think you're right, that, that, that reveal of um, his sister who he, he brutally murders at the beginning of the film, his sister's gravestone in the, in the bedroom is, is fascinating, both on a kind of maybe a psychoanalytic level, on a historical materialist level, you know, suburbia is a place of nightmares, really, right?
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So let's let let's let's talk about the man of the hour. Let's let, let's talk about Michael Myers for a bit. I know you wanted to talk about uh you mentioned earlier before we started recording Michael Myers and the nature of evil and kind of his yeah. psychopathology from a Lacanian standpoint.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is this is the interesting thing, right? That Michael escapes from the psychiatric hospital or the, the, the psychiatric prison where he's been forcibly detained um and he is being um, that's when the film introduces uh, Dr Loomis played by the legend that is Donald Pleasant mm-hmm. um and Loomis is a psychiatrist uh, but he doesn't he doesn't psychopathologize uh Michael he doesn't go oh this this person is really is really just ill. Mm-hmm instead instead what he does is he says that he he spent uh what what, i can't remember the exact quote he spent eight years trying to trying to reach him reach this this person who seemed to have no concept of good or evil of life and death and morality and then he spent another seven years trying to keep him locked up because he realized that he was evil he wasn't it's just, it's a really shocking admission for a psychiatrist to make, right? Absolutely, the, and this is the psychiatrist is supposed to diagnose what's wrong,
0: right? And and the fact that, that he he has no physical groundings for this, right? He's not able to to uh, articulate a mental condition that you know inscribes Michael Myers's inherent evil and violence. He has to resort to kind of this metaphysical almost like theological phrasing when when he starts talking about michael myers is like this being of evil yeah this being of pure evil and there's something i mean there's something in horror that that i really like that this kind of existing contextually and and horror has always had um uh, a complicated dialogue with ableism right Dis- disfigurement and disability are often the markers of evil and they're often the signifier for like oh well we know that guy's going to be the killer because he's got the scar or he's in the mental asylum or something and michael myers does exist in some of this context he he has been locked up in an asylum he is beset by a psychiatric doctor but uh you know michael myers isn't uh framed as being uh, crazy as being evil or as being crazy, or you know, it's not his mental illness that's driving him, it's just the fact that he is an inhuman force of evil. It's kind of, yeah, it's an it's onto- de-medicalized. It's a, it's ontological,
1: yeah, it's this ontological state of, uh, of evil. Um, and it seems plausible in the world of the film because Michael is always kept so distant from the camera and from the audience, you're never able, there is no scene in which you are. Able to emotionally connect with him.
0: Absolutely. I mean,
1: the the opening sequence where it's all shot through the POV of the of um, Michael wearing a, the clown's mask is really it distances you entirely because of the subversive expectation twist uh, at the end when it's revealed that he's just a child. So there's he toys very cleverly with the kind of uh, the implicating of the audience and the violence that he enacts. Mm-hmm. But you never you never feel like emotionally connected to Michael. He always seems this kind of weird metaphysical ontological evil that has just kind of emerged into this small town. And this is
0: even down to the script writing as well. In the script, Michael Myers is referred to as quote unquote the shape. And there are so many scenes, um, it, it was specifically outlined that Michael Myers never runs during the film, even though he's able to catch up to everyone he tries to pursue. He can be- Which- Oh, go on. I
1: was about to say, which kind of reinforces the the suspicion that you have that, you know, maybe he's just, he's not just a person.
0: Yes, absolutely. Right? And even, he's we'll get into this force. later, but in the end, when he's unable to be killed.
1: Yeah, Right. And so there is a suspicion that there's this supernatural, almost theological aspect to his nature, mm-hmm. uh, which gets kind of, uh, I was going to say watered down, but like brought up again. The many, many franchise, uh, spinoffs and sequels, but it's done with real understatement. And it's, and I think it's interesting, right? There's, there's, I think it's important that like any kind of left, Project doesn't—it isn't enough to either kind of psychopathologize or moralize about um, about evil or about this kind of violence, this kind of sadism, um, because the tendency is either to go, ah, "Well, products of, of of an environment," which means that there is no human agency, or you or you kind of fall back into what you were talking about earlier with those sort of ableist uh, tropes of uh, stigmatizing mental illnesses. So it's really interesting that this film does neither of those. That's a challenge, right? That's a challenge for any kind of left critique. What 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 does it mean to talk about evil from a left-wing point of view as a as a historical materialist?
0: It definitely it definitely complicates the dialogue. You know, like these these horror films are, exist and in, 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 are like horror broadly exists and is informed by the culture around it. So it's going to carry with it the baggage of the culture. Yeah, of course. And so it's always going to be in dialogue with racism and ableism and misogyny, and and you know we can go down the line of all of these isms. And horror will always carry with it these weights, and especially horror more than other genres, because you know horror by its very nature has to confront something that you're afraid of, and fear yeah, is is always mediated through this cultural imagination.
1: Um, and it's interesting. It's interesting then that. Like, we're quite, um, I mean, you can either claim that we're sort of too quick or not quick enough to kind of throw the word evil on something. And in many ways, it's a kind of way of going, well, this is something that I just don't like. But I think what's valuable here is the, the challenge to think through the ethics of horror, um, in a way that doesn't fall into those
0: reductionist, um, and really quite basic kind of frameworks, you know? Absolutely. So, so I'm really excited to, to hear this, but how do you tie Lacanian psychoanalysis into Michael Myers?
1: Well, one of the, one of the ways that we, we could go into that is this notion of, um, the negative subject, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Lacan always talks about this as the barred subject. There are bits within subjectivity that are inaccessible, that are unknown. Um, and there is a sort of, kernel of, of negativity within subjectivity itself. Zizek has expounded upon that at great length uh, in lots of his work. So maybe, maybe a way of sort of avoiding, if people are uncomfortable with kind of the metaphysical and theological connotations of talking about evil is to talk about Myers as like a force of negativity, of kind of annihilative subjectivity that's, you know, he's not, he isn't... Um, affirmative like his desires are only to destroy his 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 uh violence is there to sort of um it doesn't generate anything Mm. he's trying to annihilate these people and it's reflective of of his own self right um loomis describes him as uh he's got the blackest eyes the devil's eyes uh and it's like there is a there's a kind of core of negativity behind those eyes there is a there's a there's a terrifying void Um, There is a a a privation of being. There is something that should be there, you know, but there's
0: but there's nothing. Um, So maybe that's a way into into thinking about it. What do you think? I I would absolutely agree with that. You know, Michael Myers has no agenda. Has no like compare him with other slasher killers. You know, Ghostface, uh, Freddy Krueger. You know, Mm -hmm. everyone in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, like they're they have goals, right? Their goals may be, um, you know, to preserve their life force as a demon that haunts your dreams or um, (laughs) a really complicated and ethically dubious art installation piece mediating on the nature of horror cinema. But, but these, these slasher killers at the end of the day, they have a reason for what they're doing. You know, like they, they to some manifestation have thought it out and determined a course of action. Whereas Michael Myers is a force, right there. There's yeah. no, there's no personhood there in Carpenter's uh, rendition of the film to discuss. He, he just exists to destroy.
1: Yeah, can you can you negotiate with him? No. Can you can you outrun him? No. Can you, uh, can you kill him? No. Right. Like he is, he is, he is weaponized negativity. Um, there to sort of expose the facade of civility that, that, that rests, uh, over suburbia.
0: Uh, those were some great points on the nature of evil and psychopathology and Lacan and John Carpenter's <laughs> Halloween. You know, if if you, if you would have asked me like five years ago, if I would be like discussing Lacanian negativity and <laughs> John Carpenter's au I don't think I would have said yes.
1: But you know, that's, that's living your best life, right? That's
0: <laughs> I know. I know. Like, and I'm, I am such a hater on psychoanalysis too. Like, like as, as a little subfield, I, I carry, mm. I, I have a huge chip on my shoulder about it, but I think that this podcast will eventually wear me down. Because if we're talking about horror movies, there's just like,
1: yeah, this is, <laughs> this
0: is a gold mine uh, for some Lacanian analysis. Um, but I think,
1: I think, I, I, is it right if we, if we sort of jump back just a second to talk about something else that you brought? We, we kind of tangentially got near when we were talking about suburbia, right?
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Um. Here's here's a question: Where are the parents in this film?
0: Yes, yes. <laughs> right. Where where are the adults who aren't background characters or Doctor Loomis? Uh, they are either
1: working, desperately socializing away from their children, or just absent. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, and I think this is absolutely kind of fuel for the idea that you could read this film as a pretty scathing critique upon like the suburban middle classes. Like all of the parents are just too, too eager to like dump dump the kids, their <laughs> annoying children on the local uh teenagers who maybe need some babysitting money and then get out of there. Especially on Halloween. Right? The the parents are all gone on Halloween.
0: Right? Yeah, yeah. And I think I think there's there's a lot to be said about this. The the absence of of any kind of a uh, adult authority figure barring Dr. Loomis. He's, he's really the only one, but Dr. Loomis is really kind of like, he's, he's really not too good at being um, an adult authority figure. He's kind of singularly <laughs> focused on hunting down uh, Michael Myers who like, and, it's, and instead of like having like a level-headed approach to, to, to an escaped uh, dangerous individual, he's like, the, you know this this pure force of evil this child with the eyes of the devil has escaped.
1: Yeah, he he is he does not take it well. <laughs> let's let's mm-hmm. just let's just say that it, it sets is, him off. <laughs> but this is one of the things that's really interesting about about suburbia generally, right? Because it's a mark of success to get there, but mm-hmm. it it also like fundamentally uh, kind of fractures the family unit because yeah you probably, yeah you probably have to have ev- everybody working um to secure that you have to family life becomes secondary to being a commuter Mm -hmm. so like it's not a surprise that it's not a surprise that the parents are sort of absent from the scene
0: yeah absolutely the the modern economic realities of suburbia essentially dictate that you don't get to have a family right you you spend like the evenings and maybe part of the morning, if if you don't have to work two jobs, yeah, with, absolutely, with, as a family unit together.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You 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 only briefly see Laurie's dad right at the beginning mm-hmm. of the film, uh, Annie's dad is the sheriff, so he's he's working all night. Um, so yeah, they're they're the parents are gone here.
0: Mm-hmm. And this was this was the '70s too. This was back when you could still uh, theoretically pull a life together on a single fam- or on, a, on, a, on a single income family.
1: Uh, but clearly, it's not possible, right? Clearly. Yeah, clearly... yeah.
0: It's it's already horror is already already saying like, hey, like this reality is falling apart. This this thing we've got going on is is horrific and not very sustainable.
1: You know, we all bought nice houses and nice cars, and we thought we had made it, and we thought we were safe, but really you know, the the thing that is, uh, you know, the, the ones who are most vulnerable, the children. Mm-hmm. You, you leave them in suburbia and what happens? This force of unstoppable evil comes to brutally <laughs> murder them. <laughs>
0: oh, that, 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 that is an, that's an awesome warning.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is no safety anywhere in capitalism, right? We're all made mm-hmm. vulnerable. We're all, we're all made contingent. We're all made subject to the violences of uh, systematic uh, capitalist exploitation in a myriad mm. different ways,
0: and, and, and so- the the horror of this film is is predicated entirely upon that. Yeah, you know, without without the absence of essentially every single adult that could have intervened in this conflict before it got started, the 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 horror doesn't begin without an without an economic system that isn't really concerned with how it treats uh people with extreme mental illness and kind of is satisfied to lock them away without uh you know properly addressing that situation mm. you know we don't like the horror of this movie doesn't even kick off
1: yeah and and of course you think about you know you being you're left in the suburbia without any parents and like all of these characters sort of lapse into like just sort of the bored hedonism mm-hmm like because it looks like a boring town to live in
0: (laughs) yeah yeah definitely like i i spent part of my childhood growing up in suburbia and like on a very real level there are few things to do in in suburban places and part of that is because the the economies there are so harsh that it's it's hard to sustain community businesses that that people could form uh you know neighborhoods around and kind of come together to create spaces yeah 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 and Absolutely. In, in addition to that uh the nature of suburbia is are, is the nature of gated communities that are heavily policed you know no no being in parks too late no being in parks unsupervised there are there are few areas where the community can kind of just congregate to be together i mean
1: in a way you could see michael myers as a as a Part of that police function of suburbia, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you better be grateful, kids. You better be grateful that we. Oh my we God, got...
0: Michael Myers is a cop! <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's like, what happens if you, you know? Because what is there to do? You can, you can, you can drink. You can mm-hmm. hook up with your your boyfriend. You can borrow your 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 mum's car and drive around uh, smoking a joint until until you spot your dad the sheriff <laughs> and then have to throw it away right um, right
0: and I mean like unless unless you were a loser like me and you spent all of your time like either in a library or watching movies that that's really the suburban condition
1: yeah uh, and the other thing you can do is you can babysit children and make them popcorn and watch movies and that's mm-hmm. about that's about it.
0: Yeah, which I mean, like, like, you know, we we can we can discuss the the economic realities of needing to have a job as as a child, which which I find to be interesting, you know, like the the idea that like, oh, well, it'll teach you it'll teach you good values if you have to have some kind of income as as a youth
1: yeah i think i think that's true which is Uh, which is
0: again increasingly separated from uh the the apocryphal because the apocryphal version of that is like okay set up a lemonade stand or do some babysitting and then you'll have fun money for when you want to go out with your friends yeah but increasingly the reality of that is uh you know teenagers have to get jobs in order to sustain the family
1: yeah oh like maybe you you in this in the in the world of this film, maybe it's a case of like, well, you need the job just so you can like get out of the house. You can do something mm-hmm. else other than, you know, be at home where you're ordered around by your father or be at school.
0: Yep. Yeah, you, you, can, you, you, you need money in order to get into the movie theater, to hang out at the malt shop, to, yeah, exactly. to, to borrow your dad's 58 Chevy and drive around.
1: <laughs> and, and, you know, Laurie says that at various points, right, she doesn't do anything because mm-hmm. there's nothing to do there's nothing to do and so absolutely so what you need in this town is you need a kind of myth, mythic figure who is to serve a sort of disciplinary function for youth so that their uh their their kind of mischief making doesn't get too out of hand because so many points in this film they go oh it's those it's those damn kids at halloween you know what they're like breaking into the hardware store to steal knives. That mm-hmm. must be kids. Who else would it be? Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, like... The, the graveyard uh, attendant, when um, Loomis asks to see Michael's sister's grave, he goes, oh, it's these kids on Halloween. They've stolen the gravestone uh, marker. <laughs> like, it's the kids. It's these kids. And so I think it's quite possible to read the film as offering Michael Myers as, like, a disciplinary figure, right?
0: And I think I think um, to, to kind of connect this into horror studies at, at a, at a, in a larger scope, yeah. this is something that Carol Clover touches on. Carol Clover kind of expressly reads Michael Meyer and the figure of a slasher in general as this uh, moralizing force of conservative Christian value. You know, mm-hmm. Michael Myers is there to stop those kids from having premarital sex, from using drugs and alcohol yep from being out of line, even in the slightest
1: yeah I mean I think he's 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 a he's he's not as moralizing as some of the others as some of the other slashes where the the kind of politics and the slasher gets kind of boiled down to being quite reactionary in some places oh
0: yeah definitely like like we talked about in our black Christmas episode. You know, like the rules are still being established. Like Halloween is the the prototypical slasher, but mm. it's still early on in the genre. It's still before it becomes like, you know, it's not until we start seeing like hackneyed slasher clones, yeah, 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 that we that we really start getting the formula of like, okay, well, you know, uh, any people of color die first, and then we have you know sexually active people start to die, and then we kind of just yeah. build our way up until it's the virginal uh, uh, nice girl.
1: I mean, one of the things that I think is really interesting about this film specifically and the idea of the slasher figure as a, as a kind of uh, disciplinary function is that Laurie says at many points. in Dream, like the first hour of the film, she's constantly being watched. Uh-huh. She's constantly being watched. And she, she constantly feels herself being watched. And I think rather than kind of forbidding transgression, that's the thing about suburban living, isn't it? It's not the thing of like, oh, you can't do this. It's like, well, you could, but you know, (laughs) everybody's watching you to see what you're going to do. And you better behave appropriately unless you want everybody. Because like, you know, it's Foucault's Panopticon, right? Oh yeah, yeah. If if you've made it to suburbia, you are constantly under observation. You are constantly <laughs> being watched,
0: and so it's. I, I was about to jokingly say, uh, uh, Foucault was right. Suburbia is a prison. <laughs> but but no, there's a hot take for you,
1: right? <laughs> but like, uh, and she she's, but there's this moment where she kind of tries to dismiss it as like, oh, she's being paranoid. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, just because you're paranoid, it doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Yeah. Just because you think, you go, oh, it's, it's it's crazy to think that everybody's watching me in suburbia, doesn't mm-hmm. mean that they're not doing that.
0: <laughs> right, right. The, the, this, this reminds me of Chomsky's point that conspiracies are only conspiracy theories until they're proven. Yeah, exactly. You know, Watergate was a conspiracy theory until the paper trail was found. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, exactly. So it's not a surprise that Laurie. It's not that there is a kind of active force. I think it's quite clever that, like, it's it is it's almost like for the first hour of this film, all you see is Lori being watched, being mm-hmm. put under observation, until you get the, the 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 frantic final act.
0: Yeah, and and back back to your point, really quick about the absence of parents. One thing that's really telling is that in, in this film. A giant man like Michael Myers is very tall and very uh, muscularly built. You know, he's yeah. he's beyond human, even in his physical proportions. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and he's he's carrying around a giant chef's knife and wearing mm-hmm. a horrifying William Shatner mask. Yep. And th- a man like that can kind of just like stroll about this suburban community and like none of the parents are aware. No adult. Yep. Picks that up on their radar as something even slightly suspicious.
1: No, nope, nobody seems to notice. Um, which again is part of part of the, the the importance of setting it on that particular day, on, mm-hmm. on on Halloween. But he's not conceptualized as just a man walking about again, is he? You know, do, no, do, yeah, he, yeah, he is a the, shape.
0: The, he is he is the specter haunting suburbia.
1: The, yeah, I mean, the film opens with those kids chanting about ghosts and ghouls. And all mm-hmm. things dark that sort of work walk the earth on Halloween, which is where those kind of libidinal mythical creatures take on a physical form. And what you get is you get the embodiment of suburban paranoia and violence and and hate and negativity in the shape of Michael Myers. Talking about earlier Ash in in regards to Black Christmas and the slasher, mm-hmm. um, you mentioned um, maybe the most uh, famous sort of theorist when it comes to talking about fashion films and that's carol clover
0: yeah get get used listeners get used to us mentioning carol clover and her text men women, and chainsaws, because men, is, women in chainsaws read men women and
1: chainsaws it is
0: seriously read read that book it is possibly uh one of the best and definitely the most foundational text for the study of the horror film
1: mm-hmm. I, I
0: don't think it is it is a stretch of the imagination to say that no completely correct
1: completely correct
0: Right. And the the big idea that Clover advanced was the idea of the final girl in the horror film. And the final girl is the uh, she's typically like virginally pure, morally pure. You know, she is, she's the Lori Strode. She's the good babysitter who's not drinking, not smoking that devil's weed, not trying to have sex with her boyfriend. She just wants not to invite a, a boyfriend over. Yep. Right. Yeah. She just wants to have a good time babysitting the kids do her job and and be, be righteous about it. And, you know, those are the characters that wind up there. Those are the female characters rather that wind up surviving the horror movies. So, you know, Carol, Carol Clover posits that they're essentially uh, selected for their purity and that's, what's allowed them to survive these encounters with figures like Michael Myers.
1: So that sort of accelerates the um, kind of idea of the slasher as a, as a, um, disciplinary and policing function, right? Mm-hmm. And so it sort of makes it possible to read that as a sort of morality play, in a way, right? You get the punishment of all the bad people who enjoy themselves and indulge their hedonisms, which, you know, you could tie back to work like Max Weber and the uh, Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, right? You need you need that good work ethic. You need that sobriety and abstainiousness chaste worker to be a productive uh, member of society under capitalism
0: mm-hmm. and um, i mean like like in, in addition to that i mean like to, to give this a little bit of an intersectional scope you know these the oppressive force of michael myers is kind of very it's very easy to read him as selecting for uh and pursuing women who deviate from what the patriarchal norms say a young woman should be right if if uh if a young woman is kind of having active agency in in what she defines her pleasures as whether that's uh drinking smoking weed going out with the boys Mm -hmm. you know michael myers is coming and he'll get you you know you have you have to fall in line to these prescribed uh gender norms or you don't survive the slasher um
1: i don't know do you do you think that that this is a good model then that 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 halloween sort of fits that that paradigm from clover
0: well thanks for asking that question john and no it's, way does that uh, set me up um, it's it's almost like we planned this <laughs> right it's, it's it's almost like we are competent this is this is this is the magic of podcasting is that we seem competent
1: it's not true don't believe our lies don't believe, yes, lies. Yeah, don't don't a, believe the lie, lie. <laughs> <laughs> but you were but, talking you were talking earlier about how uh, before we started recording about how you sort of had a few problems with this um, with this reading of the film.
0: I definitely um, I definitely think you can nuance it. I think there's ways to approach uh, how Clover kind of frames Michael Myers as a moralizing force that, that you can easily trouble. And I think um, we can read Carpenter's own comments into the context made by Clover. Yeah, right. Uh, while Clover uh, carves out a space for the final girl to be uh, a somewhat empowering figure. Carpenter's own explanation for why uh, Laurie is able to survive builds this out a little bit further. You know, uh, Carpenter rejects the idea that Laurie survives because of her, like, virginal final girl purity. Mm, You know, um, he he kind of spells it out that she survives because in a way she mirrors Michael Myers. Mm, You know, that... That that, uh, Laurie exists as kind of, you know, the the female inverse of Michael Myers. Michael Myers is full of, like, you know, this, this kind of pointless, negative, toxically, like, like quote-unquote, toxic masculinity rage, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he's just trying to destroy and contain the world around him. But uh, Carpenter says of Laurie uh, that she is uh, the one girl who is most sexually uptight, just keeps stabbing this guy with a long knife. She's the most sexually frustrated. She's the one that's killed him. Not because she's a virgin, but because of all of that sexually repressed energy starts coming out. She uses yep. all those phallic symbols on the guy. That's Carpenter's quote on the subject. And you can kind of interesting. see...
1: Interesting, interesting.
0: You know, if, if, if we're going to read Michael Myers as being kind of this psychosexual monster corrupted by, um, you know the patriarchy and toxic masculinity we can, um, and, and the inverse see all of those same negative effects played into Laurie Strode. You know, she's, she's psychosexually repressed to the point where she is the only one capable of countering Michael Myers, own, uh, sexual psychosis.
1: Um, uh, yeah. Do you, would you agree?
0: I think, I think to, to an extent, I, th- I think that, um, my I mean, point of it's, disagreement it's, with how that's interesting, but yeah. like,
1: I think I think that makes that I don't know whether that dualism really stands up between the two of them, you know. I,
0: I think some aspects of it stand up, uh, specifically, specifically the sense that, um, suburban moralizing forces, uh, distort and kind of destroy our essential humanity, yeah, totally.
1: I mean, because. Yeah, she's the one who's maybe more sort of buttoned up than her friends. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, is that is is that a product of like being in this panoptic suburban space, or is that just how what she's like, or maybe a combination of all of them? Because it's like, you know, there's a, there's a there's a boy that she thinks is cute and she kind of mm-hmm. wants to go to the homecoming dance with
0: but that's that's very much like like that's acceptable right like i think i think within like the the like american puritanically informed suburban moral system you know having a crush on a nice boy and wanting to go to the dance is is very much within the acceptable paradigm especially when compared to her friends who are like you know skimping out on their babysitting responsibilities to smoke weed and have sex
1: yeah that's that's true but i'm but like that moment comes not when she's, like, talking to her parents who are kind mm-hmm. of making sure that her desires are acceptable and moderate true, enough. True, true. That's, that's, like, with her friends who finally get her to kind of let down the guard a little bit and mm-hmm. admit that those are kind of those desires and those 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 wants are something that she, that is present within her.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely this this type of read of Laurie Strode that Carpenter is putting forth, I, I think there are definitely some holes in it. And I think those holes kind of expressly come forward when we kind of compare the types of violence that, that that's being committed here. Yeah. You know, um, if if Laurie Strode's proximity to that same, uh, like the the psych- the I guess the to, to be very Carol Clover about it, the psychosexual violence of the slasher and of the suburban space, yeah. gives her the ability to kind of resist and be aware of Michael Myers in a way that her friends are incapable <laughs> of. I think that when we look at the violence, her violence is the violence of a survivor. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. You know, Laurie, Laurie Strode is surviving this attack. You know, she is she is touching the monstrous and becoming monstrous as as a coping mechanism to survive. Like like anyone who's had to survive a difficult personal situation, some of our coping mechanisms for that survival uh become deeply toxic later on. Mm. And then yeah. Michael Myers's violence on the other hand, it it lacks the morality of the cause. Michael Myers's violence is an imprisoning, uh, wild, annihilating force that that really doesn't have a focus or a drive. It just kind of exists to destroy the world around it.
1: Yeah, and you have to you have to sort of take into account results as well, right? I mm-hmm. mean, uh, Laurie's violence is triggered by the need to protect those two kids. Yes, uh, to protect herself. Um, so I I sort of. I think it's it's reductive to say that like this film fits as that kind of moralistic uh, reaction politically reactionary genre that does definitely does emerge in the late '70s and 80s uh-huh. um, of punishing the hedonistic young generation. but it's also not quite as okay, it's the ones who are the ones who are pure and virginal and puritanically constrained and subjectivized that the ones who can survive. It is more nuanced than that, and that's credit to um, both uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and Carpenter, I think, right?
0: Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. Like, I think the, the acting on Curtis's part is fantastic. I mean, she's easily the
1: best actor in the film.
0: Oh, oh yeah. We, up should, up a there with whatever. Donald Pleasance. Yeah, besides, know, besides could... I was going to say, maybe she, she's tied with Donald Pleasance, but Donald Pleasance has, like, years of experience on her. Yeah, and this was her first big picture, right? Yep. Yeah, she was doing some... I think the only thing she did before this was small-time TV work, and this is the first uh, large cinema role she ever had. I think um, she was paid $8,000 for the role, and I think uh, the story goes that on her first day on set, she thought she did so poorly that she was going to get fired, and Carpenter (laughs) wound up calling her later that evening, and then she was like, oh, this is it, I'm getting canned for being a shitty actress. Yeah. but Carpenter actually congratulated her for, for being so talented.
1: <laughs> that's that's a really enduring story. That's a really enduring story. Um, any, any final thoughts, anything more that you'd like to sort of, uh, add before we uh, start wrapping things up?
0: Uh, yeah, I'd like to add a teaser for Halloween part two. That's going to be, uh, dropping at the end of the month. Uh, oh that's gonna be a good one (laughs) towards the beginning of the episode good sir you cast shade upon uh (laughs) (laughs) later auteurs who would seek to handle the subject matter of the Halloween franchise and without getting into too much spoilerage uh for our forthcoming episode uh you are wrong and a fool and I look forward to meeting you on the field of combat
1: bring it on (laughs) (laughs) Uh, oh, this next
0: episode's going to rock. It's going to be so much
1: fun. It's I don't know if there'll be an episode after the next one, but let's. Yeah. <laughs> let's 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 see. Let's see. Um but yeah, John Carpenter's Halloween, um undisputed masterpiece of horror filmmaking. Really fascinating and rich uh, critique of American bourgeois suburbia, the violence that is lurking beneath the apparent uh, placid surface um and also a kind of foundational text in horror studies
0: yeah yeah this the, it's been great that we've been able to uh address this film so early on in the podcast because i think so much of modern horror cinema and modern horror culture is really underpinned by the figure of the slasher and the figure of the slasher was really fleshed out with john carpenter's halloween watch it go watch it (laughs) right go go watch why are you listening to this podcast when you could be watching John Carpenter's Halloween (laughs) I mean I mean listen to this podcast while watching John Carpenter's Halloween as a sort of director's commentary all
1: right let's uh, let's 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 wrap this up shall we (laughs) oh yeah
0: yeah that's been good uh Uh, thank you thank you for listening everyone thank you for tuning in as always uh We've been your hosts, uh, Ash and John. You can find us both on Twitter. You can find the Horror Vanguard also on Twitter at Horror Vanguard.
1: Yeah, please do follow us on Twitter there. And if you enjoy the show, if you'd like access to uh, bonus episodes and some extra special goodies just for our backers, please do think about uh, chipping in a dollar, through uh, or two at uh, Patreon.com/HorrorVanguard.
0: Yeah, uh, the, the first Patreon bonus episode uh, should be live uh, by the time this one comes out. And if you'd like to hear the uh, arcane book club of horrors where John and I discuss the underlying horror and horror uh, cultural points that exist in leftist theory texts, definitely check out our Patreon page. And you can find us, of course, on SoundCloud and on a
1: host of other excellent podcast aggregators and distribution services. Wherever
0: top-shelf audio commentary is (laughs) purveyed, we will be there. But until next time, goodbye. Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades. And remember, stay spooky.